I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 2. We have spent about three weeks going through the first chapter of Proverbs. We're going to speed things up just a little bit. We're going to look at, uh, at all of chapter 2. Not, not because we're in a hurry to get through Proverbs, but because this chapter really holds together as a, an admonition from a godly father to his son, to his child, that, uh, that this child might learn the way of wisdom, the way of righteousness, in which there is life, in which there is the blessing and the reward of God. <clears throat> so we're going to read all of chapter 2 of Proverbs together. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of His saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. To deliver you from the way of evil. From the man who speaks perverse things. From those who leave the paths of uprightness. To walk in the ways of darkness. Who rejoice in doing evil. And delight in the perversity of the wicked. Whose ways are crooked. And who are devious in their paths. To deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. For the upright will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the earth, and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's faithful and trustworthy word. Beloved family of God in Christ, the parents among us know the importance of teaching our children to obey. If they don't learn early to obey, well, for one thing, they could get hurt. Mischievously touching a hot stove that mama said to leave alone, they get burned. Running into a busy street after dad has said to stay in the yard, they could get desperately hurt. There's danger in disobeying those whom God has set over us for our good. There's also, let's be honest, there's an embarrassment factor. I've been blessed with children who've never significantly embarrassed me in a, a restaurant, but I've worked in enough restaurants to have seen the agony of parents whose children had not learned how to obey. And it is agonizing, both for those parents and for everyone around them as their children continually disobey and wreak havoc on the, the restaurant and on their family. But there's a bigger reason even than their safety or our embarrassment. Why we teach our children to obey. The bigger reason is 
so that those children will learn to obey God. Rebellion comes natural to the heart of every person born of Adam's line. Before they can walk, before they can speak, our children already know how to rebel, how to disobey, how to do what they've been told not to do and not do what they've been told to do. And so it's our calling to train them to obey those who are over them, starting with us and culminating in God. Now there are a way of a a list of ways of approaches by which you can teach your children to obey or attempt to. Some parents take the enlightened approach of simply reasoning with their children, showing them the logic of obedience. And good luck with that. Because rebellion knows nothing of logic. And that tends to be a fruitless exercise. Others, others tempt, or attempt to Beat them into submission, if you will, using fear as a motivator to obey. And that might work outwardly, but the byproduct of using fear as a motivator to obedience is bitterness and a deepening of that rebellion. Or you could use a mixture of teaching and consequence, showing them by means of spankings and other punishments that ultimately disobedience hurts. It hurts now on your bottom. It hurts ultimately with the judgment of God. But but mixing that consequence with teaching, explaining to them, showing to them why it is good, why it is a, a reward to obey. Now, I believe that last method is the most effective and also the most biblical. And we see some of that here in Proverbs 2. Now, Solomon is not writing to his young child. The way he speaks here indicates that this is a young man of perhaps adolescence or thereabouts. A young man of of some understanding, a, a young man who's wrestling with the ways of the world. And he brings that twofold call to obedience, not just obedience to him, but obedience to God, obedience to wisdom which comes from the Lord. And he imparts the importance of obeying wisdom, of embracing wisdom. First of all, by teaching, showing the blessing that comes to those who embrace wisdom, but also by showing the consequence. What happens to those who reject wisdom, who neglect that call of God, and conversely, how God delivers us out of those consequences when we seek Him, when through the fear of the Lord, through our faith in Christ, we embrace His wisdom. The message here is both simple and profound. And it's that the fear of the Lord leads to a life-encompassing reward. The fear of the Lord, our faith in God, leads to a life-encompassing reward. And he shows that first positively. By urging his son, by urging us to delight in receiving wisdom. This first section is a conditional statement, a long conditional statement, a conditional statement nonetheless. Kids, you know what that means, right? A conditional statement. Mom says, if you get your homework done, then you may play video games. Or dad says, if, you, if I have to tell you that again, then you're going to be grounded. Those are conditional statements. If the condition is met, then the consequence, whether good or bad, will be brought out. 
Here we have a conditional statement, the condition of which covers the first four verses. These teach us how we can receive the reward that's described in verses 4 through 6. We can receive the blessings of the Lord only in the way of the condition, in the way of God's command. And really the condition is quite easy to understand. We're called to receive true wisdom. Now wisdom, as we've seen in the the first chapter of Proverbs, is deeper than just knowledge. Wisdom is taking the knowledge we receive and applying it to life, applying it to the way the world works. And ultimately, we've seen wisdom is a gift from God. It's given to those who fear the Lord. It's given through a relationship with the Lord. At the end of the day, wisdom, well, wisdom is Christ. Wisdom is seeing the world as one who wholeheartedly belongs to God through Christ. Wisdom is understanding the world as one who loves and serves Christ. Wisdom is responding to the world with the mind of our Savior. If we would possess the blessings of God that are described later, we have to begin by embracing the, the wisdom that comes through Christ. Look at what that involves in these, as it's expressed in these first verses. It starts out with simply receiving the wisdom that is offered to us. When we're young, our parents express to us, hopefully, the wisdom that comes from God. They do that in their discipline of us. They do us as they do that as they as they teach us from God's word, as they lead devotions, as they bring us to church. But that wisdom that our parents set before us does us absolutely no good if we're not willing to receive it, to, to listen, to understand, to hide it in our hearts. And as we learn to receive that wisdom, we have to begin actively gathering wisdom. Look at how it moves from passive to active. If you receive my words and treasure my commands so that you incline your ear to wisdom and you apply your heart to understanding. You begin actively seeking out wisdom. When you hear of an opportunity to learn from someone who's wise, you go to them. When it's the night before the Lord's Day, you get plenty of rest so that you can pay attention to the Word. When it's time for devotions, you, you actively pay attention to the Bible and you, you wrestle with, how does this apply to my life? And as you do that, as you begin actively seeking out wisdom, pretty soon you begin crying out for discernment, openly asking for understanding. It becomes a, a passion. Now, I don't know when that began with me. I don't know when that began with you. But over time, as we live the Christian life, as we begin first acquiescing to and then actively engaging in the wisdom that comes from God, pretty soon we begin to crave it. We begin to long for that wisdom. And we start to see it as a treasure, as something that is, is better than silver and gold. Psalm 119 talks about that so often. The psalmist cries out in verse 34, Give me understanding and I will keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. And then farther down he says, It is good for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Farther on yet, he says, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, more than much fine gold. That's what God wants. That we might long for his wisdom. That we might desire the understanding that comes from him. 
Now you might notice a bit of a paradox there. Because in the last chapter we heard that wisdom is a gift. It's something God gives us. It's something that in a sense we passively receive. But now we hear that we're called to seek out wisdom. As though it's a a hard to find treasure. Now that seems like a paradox. It seems like those two things are a bit at odds. But that's what the Bible shows us. God proclaims His wisdom for all to hear. The world itself, as we've heard many times, the world itself testifies that God is and shows us what God is like, that He is powerful, that He has made all things according to His wisdom, that He has made us, and that He's guiding and guarding our lives. So His wisdom cries out to us, and we here at the church, we hear His wisdom in the sermons, in the the catechism lessons, in the, uh, the Bible studies. We hear it in our mutual discipleship, in our conversations together. Wisdom cries out to us. But it's not automatic that we receive it. We have to to attend to it. We have to actively interact with that word that is proclaimed to us, that is set before us, or it will do us no good. So it's not an either or. It's a both and. God sends wisdom out, and we must seek it out. And if we do that, if we regard God's wisdom as a treasure, if we actively pursue it, then the blessing He sends through that wisdom will be a treasure indeed. Because right at the heart of the wisdom we receive is God. Look at verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The chief part of the blessing we receive when we seek after God's wisdom The chief part of the blessing we receive is a relationship with God. Remember, the fear of the Lord, as we saw in verse 7 of chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, not even wisdom, not even the application of what we learn. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of simply understanding the world. We can't understand the world aright until we start by trusting God who made it. But as we come to wrestle with wisdom, as we start desiring it, we begin to understand the fear of the Lord and to find the knowledge of God. We'll grasp what it means to have faith in God. We'll start to see the import of trusting in the Lord. We'll reckon with the folly of trying to live apart from our God. The wisdom that we seek, the wisdom that we need to deal with all the world, it rests in this reality that we cannot comprehend this world apart from Him who made it and who restores us to Himself. So as we begin seeking after wisdom, He will begin teaching us about Himself, what He's like and why that matters, what He's done and what a rich comfort that is for us. As we seek wisdom, God will call us to Himself that we might appreciate and wrestle with His mighty works of creation and providence that we might appreciate His merciful work of salvation in Christ for us, that we might see how that work of salvation transforms everything, our relationships, our work, our very understanding of ourselves. That is the start of the reward God gives us when we seek after wisdom. And then He, as we look to God, He provides the wisdom that we seek in all things. Look at verses 6 and following. The Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. 
Always God has emphasized this truth that true wisdom comes from Him. When Solomon looked over the vastness of the people whom God had set him over as king, he shook, he shuddered, and he said, I am not wise enough or old enough or strong enough to deal with this. And God said, I will give you wisdom. I will prepare you to lead them wisely. When Daniel, sent to the exile, heard the decree that all of the wise men of the land must die because none of them were able to tell the king the impossible knowledge that he had demanded, God provided the knowledge that no one else could give. God enabled Daniel to know not just what the king had dreamed, but what it meant. Time and again, the Bible shows us that God alone is the source of all wisdom and truth. And we need to understand that. Andrea, you've been wrestling with that. You need to understand that. That, that when we come to know the Lord, He transforms everything, doesn't He? I mean, He transforms our knowledge of, of spiritual matters, certainly. But He transforms our knowledge of of the physical world and the science by which we understand it. He transforms our knowledge of history that we might see that He's the one who superintends everything that comes to pass. He transforms our knowledge of mathematics that we might see that it's a reflection of His logical nature. Everything about the world is transformed by this understanding of wisdom because we start to learn that God is the one who made it all, superintends it all, uses it all for our good as we bow before Him. And he employs that wisdom, not merely to enlighten us, not merely to give us a, a better understanding of the world, but to defend us. We live in a dangerous world. Countless are those who desire to destroy us simply for the sake of the destruction. And they desire to destroy us even more when they learn that we serve God because they want to distract us from glorifying God, from serving God, from building up the kingdom of God. But he says here that he is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints by means of the wisdom that he gives to us. He keeps us from going down that path of of lies that the ungodly believe that, that those outside of the faith embrace. They embrace a distorted vision of the world that cuts out the knowledge of God because then they can think that they're on the throne, that they're in charge. And they keep up that charade right up until the time that the doctor says, I'm sorry, you have cancer and it's not treatable. Or right up until the time that that someone knocks on the door and says, "Your, your loved one is not coming home. And suddenly they realize they're not in charge, they're not on the throne, and then they have absolutely no hope. But through the wisdom that God imparts to us, we understand the world the way it is, that God is the one over it all, that He's the one who ordained it all, that He designed it all for our good and uses it to bless us. And so when we receive that terrible diagnosis, when we receive that tragic news, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we look to the Lord. And we say, the Lord has given, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, I trust in Him. He defends us. He holds us firm no matter what this world throws at us. And in the security of His wisdom, we learn to delight in cultivating wisdom. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul. 
God promises to give us understanding that we might comprehend the righteous behavior that delights God, that we might wrap our our minds around what is truly just, not what passes for justice in this world, but what God has said is just, that we might comprehend equity, fairness among men, and that we might understand and go after the best path, the path, the way of life that will truly bless us. What's that mean, really? What it means, brothers and sisters, Andrea, what it means is that God isn't interested ultimately in in mere appearances. He's not about the spit and polish. He's not focused on, on the image we project among men. No. God cares about the heart, the mind, the inner man. He wants us to embrace wisdom deep within us because that'll transform everything. Not just the outer, not just how we dress or how we speak. It'll transform everything about us. God wants us to embrace Him. If we would have true wisdom, the wisdom that will transform us, then that needs to start with the knowledge of God. It needs to begin with the fear of the Lord by the faith that we put in Christ. We find true wisdom only when we put Christ first. And when we put Christ first, then that leads us continually back to Christ. As we see how this world ultimately serves the purposes of God in Christ. How all of this world is meant to build up the kingdom of Christ and to prepare the way for Him that in the end, the Lord might renew and restore all things so that everything openly points to Him. When you begin to realize that, when you begin to wrestle with how all the world is serving God, even even those parts that are in rebellion against Him, even those parts that, that deny His existence, When you begin to see how all of it ultimately serves the Lord, then you will begin to love wisdom truly. Because wisdom isn't about what the world thinks it's about. It's not about getting more money, getting a better reputation, making ourselves look good, making ourselves get to the top of the pack. Wisdom is not a matter of being first and fastest and best. No, wisdom is about the discipline of learning how God thinks and beginning to think His thoughts after Him. Wisdom is about loving God and learning about God and serving God in all that we do and all that we are. And my dear friends, it is for this that you must pant. It is this which you must crave. Seek this wisdom here in the church as you, as you hear God's word proclaimed through weak men, absolutely. But also through the power of the Holy Spirit and the unchanging truth of God's word. Seek out wisdom as you attend catechism class and Bible studies. Seek out God's wisdom as you study his word throughout the week individually wrestling with that word and what it means for your life but also gathering together with the saints in Bible studies in family devotions, speaking together about what this word means, what it reveals about God and how that transforms how we live. Seek out His wisdom in the concrete situations of your life. When you're wrestling with with that difficult situation at work, with that strife within your family, with that difficult diagnosis, look to God's word. Ask for help from the elders of the church That you might seek out the wisdom that comes not from men and not from the experts of men, but from God Himself. And by all means, delight in receiving that wisdom that comes from the God of truth. Delight in it, because the alternative is absolutely horrific. That's what we see in the second half of this chapter. 
That those who without wisdom, who reject the wisdom of God, they enter into folly. And the life of folly, the life of foolishness is a life of imprisonment that ultimately will destroy us, that ultimately will separate us from everything that is good. But wisdom, wisdom delivers us by leading us to reject that folly. And that's the second thing we see here. The deliverance that is given us in rejecting folly. Verse 11 gives us a sort of a summary of the section. Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. Now discretion, that refers to the The wisdom that allows a person to devise a plan of action. To take the knowledge that we've been given and actually use it in a way that's productive. And understanding, of course, that's just just what it sounds like. Comprehending the reality, the truth of the situation. As God leads us to delight in receiving wisdom, the wisdom He sends works. It, It shows us, it teaches us how to be blessed. How to walk in the path that will truly draw us to God. And then it shows us two situations, two forms of captivity from which God with wisdom delivers us. Wisdom delivers us, first of all, from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. The way of evil, my friends, is a prison inhabited by those who live in rebellion against God. Remember I said at the beginning that rebellion is the path that we naturally walk. It's it's what comes natural to us at our earliest age. But that way of rebellion is a way of imprisonment because it, it ties us inextricably to the passions of the flesh and the rebellions of Satan and the empty ways of this fallen world. The way of evil is the way of destruction. It's the broad path The easy way to go, the way of least resistance, but it's the way that terminates ultimately in hell. And yet there are smooth-talking men who are eager to sell you on walking that path. They speak perverse things. The word there in Hebrew speaks of of that which is twisted. In other words, the, the way that this individual speaks, he takes what is true and he twists it into a way that is not only false but destructive. Perversity is what Satan spoke in seeking to convince Eve that God's command about the tree would withhold something good from her. He took something that was almost true and he twisted it into something that would destroy not just Eve, but all of mankind after her. Perversity seeks to convince you that poison is refreshing and rebellion is noble. In their perversity, men leave the paths of uprightness. They have no desire to live in a way that is righteous according to the word of God. Instead, they want to redefine righteousness without any appeal to the standards of God. They devote themselves to sins that God hates just because it feels right at the moment, just because it'll, it'll lead men to say nice things about them. But it leads them to walk in ways of darkness. Now, darkness in Scripture generally signifies that which is ungodly, that which departs from the God who is characterized by light. So to walk in darkness is to openly embrace rebellion against God. It's to to turn your back on God and all that is good. And it is this in which those who sell the way of evil absolutely delight. Look at verse 14. They rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. 
When men cast off the constraints of God's word, perverse men celebrate. They extol the bravery of those who openly identify themselves according to the sins that God has condemned. They make heroes of those who mock the ways of the saints of old. They celebrate what God identifies as rebellion, idolatry, and witchcraft, and worshiping the creation instead of the creator who is ever blessed. Rejecting the ways that God has said is right in terms of marriage, in terms of child rearing, in terms of our behavior toward one another. Celebrating the murder of children as a cause to be championed. Mocking the observance of the Sabbath. Seeking to recreate worship after the image of of the world. These things and countless others men celebrate. But they are the very things that caused Christ to cry out under the unrelenting wrath of God on the cross. But maybe you think, why do we need rescue from that? I mean, these are not the kinds of sins to which we are tempted. But my friends, we are. We and our children and our grandchildren also. We can shake our heads. We can make disapproving faces. But our hearts are tempted by the same passions as every other man, woman, and child. And as soon as we start thinking proudly that we have avoided those temptations, that they are no threat to us at all, that's the moment when the trap snaps shut upon us. You see, the outward form might change. We might not be tempted in as blatant a form of the sin as some might. But the underlying sin is no different. We too are tempted by idolatry. The temptation to exalt something, anything, in the place of God. Maybe it's something really good, like family or doctrine, but suddenly that becomes the overarching thing that we put first and God takes second seat. Or pride, the temptation to allow ourselves to become all important. And we think that would never never happen to me, but then, but then, but then someone attacks my reputation. Or someone doesn't listen to my wisdom. And we're all in arms. How dare they? Because I know what's right. I need to be the one in charge. I need to... And it becomes evident that pride is our downfall. Or lust. The temptation to allow the pleasures of the flesh to become essential. But, but those pleasures were given by God. They're given as a gift. Until we twist those gifts. And we make them all important. And we think that we deserve those things. And that they must be given to us no matter the cost to us or to others. Or maybe it's covetousness, the temptation to desire what God has given others. We look at those things and we think they're good. They're rewards for which we should strive, but suddenly that that thing that we're coveting, well, we forget that God has given it to those others, but He hasn't given it to us, and we begin questioning the wisdom of God. Brothers and sisters, we must not think that we are beyond such sins. Because we most emphatically are not. And only the wisdom of God can rescue us from the lies that make us susceptible to those sins. Only the wisdom of God can guard us from falling into that path of darkness. Because by ourselves we are too foolish and weak. And likewise in the case of the second captivity described in verses 16 through 19. Here we find the immoral woman. The seductress who flatters with her words. Now, we're not going to say much about her this morning. Not because she's not important, and certainly not because she's not a temptation. 
but mainly because we're going to talk about her at great length in just a couple of chapters. Today, we'll simply note that we are not immune to her infectious flattery. There are men among us today, probably more than we think, who feel powerless to avert our, uh, their eyes from her. That's a lifelong struggle, brothers. And this world is filled with her. It's not just those women who live over in the city. No, no, no. It's the advertisements you see on the television and on the billboards. It's the woman walking down the street. It's, it's sometimes the, the people who show up in your home. The seduction of the immoral woman. And it's not only the immoral woman who appeals to men. It's also the immoral man who appeals to the women. The appeal is in a different form, but the appeal is just the same. It's the appeal of the thrill, the passion of the flesh, the pride of being desired. But that immoral woman, she destroys marriages that could have been used for God's glory. She poisons expectations to ruin relationships that haven't even yet begun. She fills folks with self-loathing that paralyzes them and isolates them and makes them fruitless for the kingdom of God. The seduction of the immoral woman is deeply wicked and staggeringly effective. And in the end, all who follow her, says Solomon, go down to death and to destruction everlasting. Again, there is escape from the immoral woman in one way and one way only, and that is by submitting to the wisdom of Christ. Only he is able to unmask her and show the ugliness behind her beauty. Only he is able to give us the strength to recognize the poison that is set before our eyes daily in this culture. And it's only as we learn to submit to the wisdom of Christ, it's only as we learn that His way is right and good and life-giving that we see the poison, the ugliness behind that beauty. And we turn from it, we reject it. But if we do devote ourselves to this wisdom of God, He will deliver us from her and from Him and from them and from all of it. And He will do so continually. But we'll still encounter the ways of wickedness. We'll still hear the voice of folly calling out, but the voice of Jesus Christ will drown it out. The voice of the immoral woman will be unable to penetrate beyond the scripture we read just an hour or two ago. The sales pitch of the perverse man will sound hollow next to the beautiful promises of the gospel in which we delight. Andrea, remember how important it is to receive God's wisdom continually. And that's not just for Andrea, that's for all of us. Not just for those who are new members of the church, but for those who've been members of the church for decades. We cannot stand in our strength and the moment we think we can, we're lost. We can stand only in the strength of Christ. And we gain that strength as we embrace the wisdom of Christ through His Word and by His Spirit. But as we do embrace His wisdom, we gain not only victory over the sins of the moment, but absolute security and confidence for the days ahead. Last thing, look at the, the last two verses. 
The last verse says that the wicked will be cut off. They will be uprooted. In this life, even the wicked enjoy some of the blessings that God gives. The the Lord pours out His rain on the field of the godly and the ungodly alike. But because they reject wisdom, because they embrace folly, the day will come when they will be cast off, when they will be sent into the outer darkness, when they will be sent into isolation from God and all His promises, because that's what they wanted, because that's what they chose, because that's what they continually embraced. But not so for those who embrace the wisdom of Christ. It speaks there of the blessings of the land, because because Solomon was writing to Israel, to Israel which saw the the promised land of Canaan as the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And it was, but it was just the tip of the iceberg because that land was simply representative of the renewal of heaven and earth and all things when Jesus comes back. And that's what He's promised to us. That's what He's promised to everyone who embraces the wisdom of Christ through faith. But we must submit to Him. We must look to Him. We must not trust ourselves, but always and only in Him. The fear of the Lord leads to a life-encompassing and endless reward. It's a reward that leads us to delight in receiving wisdom that draws us closer to God. And at the same time, it's a wisdom that provides deliverance that leads us to reject the folly that destroys. May God cause us one and all to embrace daily the wisdom that comes through Christ. And may He be honored by all who love His life-changing truth. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, Your goodness toward us is greater than we can even comprehend. We thank you and we praise you that you have revealed to us the the living truth of Christ and all that flows from that. Teach us to submit to you, to obey you, to honor you, but teach us most of all to delight in trusting your Son Jesus and to embrace the word by which He reveals to us the truth that underlies all things. Father, may you be glorified as you lead us to submit, to honor, to obey you. For in you alone is life eternal. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.